Today on episode number 172 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, John Warner shares about values, interdisciplinary knowledge, and pedagogy. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of becoming more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I am so excited today to be speaking with John Warner. He's a writer and teacher of writing with 17 years of experience across four different institutions, the University of Illinois, Virginia Tech, Clemson, and the College of Charleston. He's a contributing blogger at Inside Higher Ed, that's the Just Visiting blog, and I read every single post with such interest and passion and Really, as I mentioned to John Philick, I already know him from just reading every word, but I didn't know he also is a weekly columnist for the Chicago Tribune, where he writes as his alter ego, the Bibliorockle, and an editor-at-large for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He's authored five books, most recently a short story collection, Tough Day for the Army, and is currently under contract for two books, which I can't wait to read, <laughs> one with Johns Hopkins UP and the other with Penguin about writing and teaching that will be published in 2018 and 2019. He currently holds the position of faculty affiliate at College of Charleston and lives in Mount Pleasanton, South Carolina with his wife, Kathy, and their dogs, Oscar and Truman. John, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm a regular listener. Well, it is an honor to have you listening. And as I mentioned in the intro, I read what I thought was every word of your columns, but it turns out that you also write for another column. So I have a whole bunch of catching up to do now that I know that about you. But I feel like I already know you so much. And one of the things I wanted to share was you posted a article on Inside Higher Ed, April 26th, 2017, and it was entitled My, quote, Last Class. And I just have to admit to you, I just started weeping when I was reading it. I was so sad because I wanted Higher Ed to be, I don't even know what words to describe it. I wanted it to be flexible enough. I wanted it to be an institution that could make it work for you. And I was just so sad, but I, I feel like that a lot's happened since then. And that there's a lot of hope, especially I, I just read in the bio about you writing a couple of books, which I can't wait to read. So could you maybe give us a little bit of background for people that haven't read that post and don't kind of know ab about your column? And, and of course, after today, we'll hopefully start reading it. And then what's happened since then? Sure. So I've always been a sort of accidental academic did my graduate studies in creative writing uh, because I, I was just interested in writing and wanted to be a writer, and then did not go into academia immediately afterwards. I had a, a quote, real world job as a marketing research consultant in Chicago, where I'm from, and was doing well at that and, and thought I, I had found a profession, even with multiple degrees in English. And and this is what I would do. But during that time, I, I got married and my wife was and is a veterinarian who wanted to go back for additional schooling and become a specialist. 
in her field, and that meant leaving Chicago. And I started teaching really because she was training on college campuses to do her internship and residency. And I had TA'd as a as a graduate student, and I'd always enjoyed it. I just hadn't considered it a viable profession. Uh, so everywhere she moved, I went with that first University of Illinois for her internship, Virginia Tech for her residency. And I taught and I loved it. And it became the thing that I wanted to do more than anything. So when she finished her residency, we moved to Greenville, South Carolina. I worked at Clemson for six years. When she changed jobs and moved to Charleston, I, I came to College of Charleston. But it's always been as a quote unquote contingent faculty member, a series of full-time instructor, lecturer jobs, uh, only teaching. But the whole time I've been writing as well, publishing books, and uh, the column started when I came to, at Inside Higher Ed, started when I came to Charleston, and uh, my weekly column for the Chicago Tribune around the same time. So in a lot of ways, uh, I've been doing the work of a, of a, you know, a tenure-track professor. It's just that my particular lives are not joined in that way. I publish and I teach, uh, but my teaching, specific teaching position doesn't put any value on my publishing. For many, many years, this was not a problem. It wasn't necessarily a problem financially, even though you all know what the pay is like for mm -hmm. contingent faculty. But I was fortunate in that my wife is a professional and I earn money through my writing. You know, but over time, disconnects between what I believe to be important about education and writing and uh, students became a tension that got harder and harder for me to, in, in my work, you know, to the point where I, I calculated that I was making about $11 an hour in my last year teaching, uh, only teaching one class uh, as an adjunct. So I knew I needed to at least take a break. I needed to see if there's a, a kind of life for me outside the classroom where school and teaching is not the, the organizing principle of my of my day, and it is possible. Uh, I, I actually wrote a blog post today about the things I miss about teaching, which are, are real and significant, but I, I am surviving. Mm -hmm. uh, it's different. Um, I've always spent a lot of time alone writing, but this is, you know, sort of every moment is, is me and my computer in my office. I'm busy with these projects you've mentioned. Which is good, you know, but it, as as you said in, in introducing me, I wish that academia had space for people like me too. And, and I know over the years I've met dozens and dozens of me, people who want nothing more than to teach and impact students and are dedicated to their work, but ultimately, ultimately it becomes impossible because the conditions under which they're asked to work. And, and the reason I lasted so long is really a consequence of being partnered with somebody who uh, makes a good income with earning outside income and a kind of mentality that said, just sort of put one foot in front of the other and do the job. It's exploitive. I say this not to ask anybody, anybody to weep for me. I have an excellent life that anybody should envy, but the kind of lost resources of human beings who are wanting nothing more than to do this work that many of us find so important is a kind of ongoing tragedy. And that's kind of guided a lot of the writing I do about higher education is the disconnects between the values we claim to hold for education, sort of developing people and helping them become the, the selves that they desire to be, 
and the practice of it, which is often not organized around those values. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, that became a really interesting subject for me to write about. So it's been, God, I, I guess it's over six years now that I've been blogging regularly. And I thought that would have been impossible mm-hmm. at the time I started. You write, my biggest regret for the moments is that I've taught my final class just as my values have come into alignment with my disciplinary knowledge and pedagogical approaches. In short, I feel like I really know what I'm doing and how I should go about doing it. This, more than anything, is what will bring me back into the classroom. I have unfinished business. And that's what you and I have decided to talk about today is this intersection of your values, your disciplinary, and actually, I think you changed that to interdisciplinary knowledge and pedagogical approaches. And we thought we might just chat a little bit about that. And just, I I love you and I have taught about the same length of time, it would appear. And I kind of have similar feelings in terms of well, when you do just start to kind of this doesn't come easy. This is a really long road. And I by no means am I done or anything even close to being done. But it is fun when you do start to see those intersections. So let's talk a little bit. And I, am I right on that, that we, we had a shared Google Doc, and I'm looking at one piece of it. And I'm thinking, no, I think he said interdisciplinary knowledge. Could you talk a little bit about some of these intersections that you see? Well, you know, some of it is, you know, well, first, I couldn't agree more that it's sort of this journey of teaching. Um, and one of the things I love most about it and why I, I think I have unfinished business is this iterative process where we try something, you see how it goes, it succeeds to some degree, it fails to uh, another, and you you get to do it again. The hard part about teaching, I think, for for many of us is that our initial exposure to teaching, at least this was very true for me, and, I, and I, I think this is generally true for others, particularly perhaps people of our vintage, you weren't given a lot of insight into teaching when you start teaching. My primary mode when I started teaching was modeling after the people who had taught me. Not that I had always had great experiences in those classes, but I just kind of thought like, well, this is what college instructors do. We lecture and we grade and we judge and we manage classrooms and this sort of stuff. And the process for me has been very one, one very much of figuring out what I actually care about, what I think is important, disaggregating things like achievement from learning. Um, you know, it took me years to realize that that grades may not reflect learning. And I don't know why it took me so long because I I had believed it of myself as a student for many years where I had learned things even when my grades weren't good or I had gotten good grades where I hadn't learned much. Mm. But when you're in charge, and that for me that came with a lot of kind of institutional weight, like I have to do it in the way it's done, so I'm going to try to do this while being also somewhat true to myself. But things started to to change over time. Ken Bain, who I know you've you've, uh, interviewed maybe even more than once, when I read his What the Best College Teachers Do, I realized that I, I could give myself permission to experiment, to do things like get rid of my attendance requirement, which used to have me fuming with myself. I'd be in class and know some student was over my my attendance limit, and didn't they know that they were going to make me dock their grades, and why are they turning me into this horrible person who's you know going to give them a B just because they missed six classes instead of five. And I realized I didn't enjoy being that sort of 
sheriff or jailer. Uh, so I got rid of it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I realized I could make choices consistent with what I think is important. And over time, that led to a lot of changes, things like grading contracts, uh, changing how I approach assignments, and, and all that stuff uh, in and out of the classroom. In the sense that it's interdisciplinary, it really is, I think, a combination of pedagogy as, as its own discipline intersecting with the discipline in which you, in which you work. I was not introduced to pedagogy as a, as a discipline ever <laughs> until I sort of introduced myself to it. You know, I, I had I had some good mentors when I was teaching and they would help, but it was a lot of emulation, a lot of trial and error. And then I realized there's this whole disciplinary group of people who have thought about these things long before I did, and I should avail myself of their experience and expertise. And it's informed my thinking about my own work ever since. I, I, I think about writing as a discipline, and I think about pedagogical practices as a, as a discipline and, and how those things intersect and interact. We had our, our kids both in a couple of different weeks have had their back-to-school nights. And sometimes when teachers find out that my husband and I have doctoral degrees and have backgrounds in education, mm-hmm. they, they sometimes, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but... It, it just always creates this awkward dynamic and perhaps that's more on my end than on their end. But the preschool teacher starts saying, well, I mean, you already know all this stuff. And I, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I thought like, I thought, first of all, there's not time to have a full discussion about this, but a lot of people just don't realize that we're not trained in this stuff. I, I sort of grew up in my career doing corporate training, but it's funny because most of my experience doing corporate training made me realize I didn't know anything about teaching too. I mean, <laughs> I had some discoveries that mostly what I was doing, teaching computer training or teaching others how to teach computer training was really teaching people how to follow a series of steps and be entertained. I I was only introduced to the idea of a more problem-solving type of mm-hmm. pedagogy very late in that stint in that <laughs> career. And then coming into higher ed like you, I mean, it's not something that most of us get taught very well how to do. One of the themes I think I'm hearing you say, but also, of course, I know it's reflective of my own reading your column. I hear a little bit, not just about changing your pedagogy, but also changing your sense of identity. Am I accurate in hearing some of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the the things I struggled with, and, and this was maybe particular to also being contingent faculty and, and kind of wondering if you don't have the title of professor, but you do the work of professor, who are you or what are you and what is your role? But a lot of it early on was me sort of being wrapped up in the notion of my own authority as the, as the whatever my title was, as the person in front of the room, the person in charge. And, you know, I, I went through phases, the, the initial phase where I really, really didn't know what I was doing as a graduate student. And I was bluffing. You know, so I'd wear like a coat and tie to class, so I looked older and uh, set myself apart from the students. I would, when I didn't know a question, I would sort of yammer uh, in a way that would dodge whatever I didn't know that obviously didn't enlighten anybody, but also deflected the students from whatever they were asking long enough for me to move on to something maybe I did know. After that, as I, as I gained confidence, I became a little drunk with my own power and knowledge and thought, okay, I'm, I'm now training acolytes. I'm successful. So the way that these uh, young people are going to become successful is by becoming me. 
which was only slightly better than bluffing my, uh, you know, my experience with students. That collapsed pretty quickly. You know, within a semester or two, I, I realized that my best approach is to help students figure out what road they want to travel, what they're interested in, where they want to go. Some people talk about sort of moving the, yourself away from the center of the course or the center of the room. I just found myself moving further and further to the fringes of my own class of setting up what I call writing related problems for students to solve where I give them tools. I am a resource. We have a process. But so much of the work is on them that hopefully by mid-semester, I'm largely, if not irrelevant, barely visible in the frame. You know, if, if you're taking a picture of the course, you kind of have the students arrayed in the middle and I'm on the far edges, like near the flag in the corner or something. Uh, and for me, it became, uh, it was uncomfortable at first because you worry about students succeeding and, and getting grades. But over time, it became not only comfortable, I realized that it the whole time it had been natural. It fit much better with my personality my view of how education and learning works. And I really only felt like I have figured it out in the last two, three, four years that I, I knew who I was and what I wanted to be in the classroom, which is, you know, one of these reasons why I feel like I have this unfinished business. Could you talk about the distinctions in your experience between you playing a role of teacher and you playing a role of editor? Yeah. So when I'm teaching me, I find myself telling students a lot of things, like e even in writing assignments of relatively recent vintage, I, I would do a lot of have a lot of like sort of do the do's and don'ts lists or or more often sort of like be aware, like be, be aware of this. So this is a, a frequent problem. And that's kind of the teaching me. The editor me is much more the way I work when I do editing with professional writers as I as I do as as part of my work as as well which is asking questions. Um, what were you thinking when you wrote this thesis or wrote this paragraph? Or even something simple, you know, the, the struggle all writing instructors have is where students are writing sentences that are not fantastic. Rather than correcting those sentences or pointing towards a resource for how to use commas or something like that, I just talk to the student and say, what were you thinking when you wrote the sentence that I don't know what you're trying to say. And it redirects the student into asking that question of themselves. And often their answer is, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know, which is fine. That's how writing works. I, when I draft things, I have plenty of sentences that I recognize as I write them are not wholly formed thoughts. So that editor or coach or uh, sounding board is just a kind of attitude that says, I'm not going to tell students what to do. I am going to respond almost always to their questions with a question that gets them thinking again. It's a slower process. It's a more time-consuming process. In many ways, one of the things I had to get comfortable with was covering less, saying I'm not going to cover everything. I'm not going to, to expose them to everything I think a student should know because I'm going to make whatever we're doing in the moment as impactful and, and powerful as possible. 
and again, I, I would not say this is this should should be an approach everybody uses. One of my personal commandments of, of teaching is you have to teach in ways that are authentic to you. But for me, it just felt true to what I want to do and how I work. And when I realized I was treating student writers in the same way I treat professional writers, the student writing got better. They certainly were more engaged with their own writing, which I think is kind of uh, the degree of engagement is a, as good a measure of success as any. In your post called Teaching Sentences, Not Grammar, you pose three sentences. Number one, I have smelled suntan lotion spread over 2,100 pounds of hot flesh. Number two, I have smelled what suntan lotion smells like spread over 2,100 pounds of hot skin. And number three, I have smelled what suntan lotion smells like spread over 2,100 pounds of hot flesh. And then you ask your students, which is correct, which is best, and why? What kind of responses do you get from students when you pose that question and read them those three sentences? Well, usually they stare at me for a while um, <laughs> the, because they think it's a trick question. They think there is an answer. And one of the things I'm trying to alert them to about writing is that what we think is best is highly dependent on our values. Uh, those sentences are taken from an essay by David Foster Wallace called The Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, uh, collected in a book of the same title, uh, where he goes on a cruise. And anybody who knows Foster Wallace's work knows he was not the sort of personality who would enjoy a cruise. And he analyzes and dissects and seeks to understand the nature of these things. And if you know his writing, he had a very uh, particular and, and idiosyncratic style, in some ways hyperverbal, in some ways amazing and complicated and occasionally hard, but always sounding like himself. So the students and I talk about the difference between a correct sentence and the sentence we think is best. The correct sentence is the first one, the one that was, I think it was the first one in your list, the, the one that appeared in a, a serialization of the article in Harper's where they fixed Foster Wallace's uh, uh, idiosyncrasies, uh, where he, he repeats smells and smelled like yeah, the number uh, one sentence is, I have smelled suntan lotion spread over 2,100 pounds of hot flesh. Yeah, so that's what Harper's did. The second sentence is my change where I substitute skin for flesh. And the third is Foster Wallace's as he wanted it to appear uh, and did appear in his book. They immediately know that flesh is better than skin um, because the, the sentence is meant to make you cringe. <laughs> And skin, thinking about it spread over skin is gross and flesh is grosser. And so we talk about why. And they say things like, oh, flesh, it's like meat. Uh, it's like zombies feasting on flesh. And then I'll, I'll start to tease them. I'll just say like flesh over and over and over. I'll say like flesh, 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 flesh. And they'll, their faces will, will sort of beg me to stop after a while. Uh, and I'll say things like moist flesh, moist flesh. <laughs> and they'll... they'll that is so funny because I was thinking of the word. That's how some people feel about the word moist. <laughs> oh, it's, when you combine them, it's sort of the worst two words you can imagine in the English language. Moist flesh. I mean, they just, it just sounds horrendous. And I think if I did it long enough, I could get them to run from the room. So we, we, we talk about why David Foster Wallace would want to, in, in the book, uh, that he had far more editorial control over. He had become more prominent and successful at the time the book was published versus the article in Harper's. Why he would make those choices. So 
when I teach sentences, I want them understanding that when we write sentences, we make choices. Our choices should be informed. It is good when we understand standard grammar. It is good when we understand the impact of variations from the standard on audiences. And we should be writing in ways that are appropriate and and, uh, impactful for audiences. And so, in a way, they're all correct. Harper's being a magazine of erudition and educated wants it to sound a certain way. David Foster Wallace, being an idiosyncratic individual, wants it to sound another way. And the author is the one who gets to make those choices. But it is a choice. And one of the things I'm trying to give students permission to do is to understand that they're making choices, that they're not kind of aiming for a academic voice, uh, which is kind of one of the worst tortures instructors of writing can experience, where students kind of imitate what they think academic writing sounds like and create what I call pseudo-intellectual BS, uh, which I have a post about as well. And we've all seen it where there's sort of herefores and wherefores and thuslies show up in student sentences. They don't need to write that way unless they are addressing an audience that really wants you to sound pretentious and overblown. Uh, The goal is to communicate. The goal is to communicate with an audience with a specific need, with different attitudes, with different degrees of knowledge, and that these things are complicated. There's no specific target. You both have to set up your own target and endeavor to hit it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. One of the other things that comes up a lot in terms of our identity, really, we can, I guess, I see it as just making ourselves bigger than we really ought to be. And I have been there. I'm getting better at it now. But but is the idea of there being distractions in the classroom and phones and you have a one, I mean, you have a number of wonderful posts about this, but one is the false god of attention. And you say sometimes not paying attention is the most important part of learning. Could you talk a little bit about what advice you have for us when we so much want to control and want to be that center of attention and get angry at the phones, but more angry at the students for how dare you look at Instagram while I am professing yeah. my, my wisdom and, and maybe, maybe what's been helpful for you. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to act like I've, I'm above it now completely and always have been. It's, I certainly have had an evolution in my teaching and I, I just find I'm a better teacher when I'm not so big. If that makes any sense. Yeah, at all. no, I, th- I think that's a good way of putting it. I, you know, my thinking on this has evolved almost in, into a 180 over the years. You know, I I used to have an outright ban on technology. I would show the YouTube video of the professor smashing a phone in a lecture the first day of class, uh, you know, in a ha ha ha, I'm warning you type, type sense. I saw the phones as a danger, as, um, as divided attention as bad, which they can be. There's there's no doubt that um, these these tools can be misused and are misused, although not only by students. Anybody who's been in a faculty meeting will notice many of their colleagues and even themselves looking at their phones or they have their laptops open in front of them and are awfully distracted. But ultimately, I realized that a more as I as I do in class, I, I quote Uncle Ben 
talking to Peter Parker as Spider-Man, uh, with great freedom comes great responsibility. Where allowing students the agency to, to decide whether or not they're going to look at their phones is ultimately just a reflection of what's going on in, in the world. I want them to not feel compelled to check Instagram. Although if everybody's checking Instagram, I sometimes think, well, what is going on that whatever we're doing is so unengaging that they, they need to be involved with uh, with this other thing. I also became much less worried about when there are can be moments of downtime in a class where we're doing things and different people do them at different speeds, and that there is not a lot of harm in letting a student look at their phone when they're simply waiting for the transition to the next thing and, and uh, will look at it and, and put it away. Attention by itself is not a, a function of learning. We learn all kinds of things when we don't pay attention. Uh, daydreaming is an important part of my own writing process. One of the things I do, I'm, I'm in my office at home, and as, as a much younger person, I played drums in a band, and now I have an electronic drum set set up in my office. And one of my most important unblocking tools is to sit down at them, crank up my iPod and play along with Led Zeppelin, <laughs> you know, destroying what remains of my hearing, but at the same time, forgetting whatever it is I was supposed to be paying attention to. So I can, I can clear my brain. So, you know, to, to kind of regiment the classroom period, be it 50 minutes or 75 minutes or, or three hours as a place where we must be paying absolute attention began to feel to me just a bucking a kind of humanity that we we have that we should be allowed to have this this kind of freedom i do worry i worry that occasionally my giving of this freedom to students can be to their own detriment because they do miss things and they can be missing out on it but then i try to reassure myself that that's their choice. They get to decide if their behavior is to their own detriment. I am not there to, to kind of loom over them as a taskmaster because I'm not there. I'm not there when they're writing in their rooms. I'm not there when they're doing their homework. My, my role is to make them mindful about the choices they're making in class and out um, as they write. And I make recommendations. I tell them, you know, when you're drafting your essay, turn off your phone. Or turn off your notifications at the least, so you're you're not being constantly interrupted. And then when I, I advise them to do that, we come back to class and I ask them how many did that and how did it go and do you think you want to do it differently? But uh, to make rules or mandates, it just feels like a sort of you know shouting into the wind. Um, the world is going to keep moving inexorably upon us, and and to kind of push against this immovable force as a, as a dictator, it just seems kind of fruitless to me and untrue to the lives we live. Why, why, should, why should class be any different than, than any other space in that sense? I've tried to change the language that I use because I know that there was a lot more of a desire to control in my earlier teaching days. And now the language I use is to invite. So I have a mm -hmm. post I'll, I'll link to in the show notes called The Invitation. And I do think there are times we absolutely need to put our phones and our laptops away and talk and listen to each other. But that is a two-way thing. And that's where I'm teaching a class of 17. What a luxury. I mean, it's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. And mm -hmm. we're all sitting around in a circle and there aren't things in front of us except a paper and a pen. And I mean, it's, it's a, and we're all listening to each other and we're all talking to each other, but, but I'm discovering what they're learning and they're teaching me in the process 
And it's an invitation. I try to have there be something surprising every week. It's a long class. It's a three-hour class. But wow. they, they say it doesn't feel like three hours. It, feel, it just goes by. And it does for me, too, because we're having fun together. And we're we're co-creating through the they're learning. They're, they're doing the reading. We actually had a whole conversation where we talked about how do you want your learning to be measured in this course? How, and, and one of the things is really important is that we read these books. What should that look like if we're all doing the reading? How would we hold each other accountable for it? And it was a really a cool experience. But I just think instead of trying to control, we invite and we yeah. create, we set this amazing table that is an experience they haven't had before. And maybe they didn't have that modeled in their families. That was one of the things I really took away from the book Alone Together that I used to be so mad at the students. Why won't you put that away? And then <laughs> got informed that actually they grew up wishing mm-hmm. their parents would pay attention to them and yearning for that the full focus from their parents and not getting it. So it was pretty revealing. By the way, I know that alone together, I, I learned that it's a very, <laughs> some people have some concerns about <laughs> that book <laughs> and it's a uh, research, but I, that was one real takeaway I took from from having read it was just this idea that they necessarily didn't have it modeled for them either what someone else being fully present for them meant yeah i think you know the the idea that the classroom belongs to the student as much as as the instructor which you're describing perfectly there is is important because a lot of particularly before and i i teach a lot of freshmen so so their acculturation when i see them is is you know k-12 a lot of it does encourage a kind of passivity awaiting for the teacher to kind of tell me what to do and invitation that's a great word i love that word i'll be stealing that word making making it an invitation into this thing that they are in charge of i think can make a a significant difference i think you mentioning the size of this class also plays a big role in how these things work we have 17 students i was thinking of the the writing workshop i taught last semester where it was a 20-person class, but we only had 10 students in the workshop discussion at a time in a circle looking at each other. Nobody ever looked at their phones. Nobody even – it didn't occur to anybody to look at their phones. And I, I, so I think as, as, as people within higher ed who have far more influence and power than, than me or, or you or other instructors look at you know, the impact of technology and phones on it, let's look at the conditions under which we're putting students. If you put a student in a 600-person lecture, it's going to be very difficult to keep them off their phones. I, I read the the college newspaper in my large lectures in college. <laughs> uh, if I had a smartphone, I would have been looking at that. Oh, yeah. I would read books for other classes or just for pleasure in these in these classes. Attention, I don't want to say it has to be earned. I, I think the invitation is a better is a better frame. It's sort of, hey, you have your you have the floor. I don't have to get your attention because you're you're in charge. I, I think that's a great route of not focusing on the question of of attention or distraction, but of of engagement and interchange and conversation. Yeah, and if it was a six hundred person class, I'd be leveraging the heck out of attention so that the app that they were on at least some portion of the time was one that allowed them to engage in a way that that technology affords us that the in-person right. just doesn't. So, right. well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give recommendations and we've been talking a little bit about the invitation. And, and I think I want to frame mine as inviting some of our colleagues to have more of a collaborative approach. And we've had some conversations happening in our university lately. And, you know, you get the email that says, Hey, can you go and, 
give some feedback on this and that. And and so I've, I've just started, oh, great. This is great. Thank you for inviting the 15 of us to <laughs> all reply to you <laughs> individually. I said, I set up a shared Google Doc and it has a link and you don't even have to have a Google account. And this is something you know, very simple to do mm-hmm. from a technological standpoint. But a lot of people just don't realize, oh, I can actually type right into that. It's funny, the first time I did it, everyone kept making comments and mm-hmm. they felt like, oh my gosh, I couldn't possibly just type into this. And I'm slowly starting to model for them how powerful it can be to have a shared document, which for many people listening to the show might just be old hat to you, but, and it is to me as well, but to encourage more of that culture in our universities and to have influence where we might otherwise not have it. I mean, this is not projects I'm in charge of. I'm just more <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to subtly say, hey, there's this whole world out there that we don't make use of and anywhere near enough at our institutions. So that was one thing I was going to suggest was that we invite people to collaborate more like that, even if we don't think we have the power or influence to do it, just do it anyway and <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. And then the other thing is I'm so grateful to Robert Talbert, who's been on the show a number of times now. And I had recently written a post called Tools for Travel and Robert went up there and it was like a little mini blog post right in the middle of my post. And he had some great suggestions for travel that I hadn't even thought about, including getting the TSA pre-check, which is $85 for five years. I'm already signed up for my appointment, but I can't officially recommend it because I don't recommend things I haven't done myself yet. But Well, I, I did that and I can concur wholeheartedly. It has saved me multiple times from missing a flight or the stress of, of missing a flight. So you get the shorter line. You don't have to take your shoes off. It's fantastic. So that's what my husband is so excited about. My husband's like, wait a second. I missed that part. We don't have to take our shoes off. And our kids under 12, if you have kids under 12, they can stand in the line with you. And there is some accommodation for kids over 12. But since our kids aren't over 12, of course, I don't remember. And I just remember (laughs) the part that was relevant. So anyway, check out Robert Talbert's other suggestions. I'll link to that in the show notes. And John, let me pass it over to you. For your recommendations. Right. So I have I have a few. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. But starting speaking of travel, starting with that, at the start of the semester, because I wasn't teaching and I knew I was going to freak out about it, my wife and I scheduled a vacation and we've we've had some good opportunities to travel since we've been married. And we went to Italy, but we went to a part of Italy I think not as many people go to, which is the Lakes District. And we even went to not Lake Como, which is where George Clooney lives and everybody knows, we went to Lake Maggiore. So I'm recommending Lake Maggiore. It's a place to go and hang out. It's very relaxed. It's beautiful. The food is amazing. And you can even get a VRBO quite cheap in the city of Stresa, which is on the lake. Uh, So I'm, I'm recommending that for travel. I'm also recommending the novels of Tom Drury, uh, DRU. R-Y, the first of which is called The End of Vandalism. Uh, I do this because he's probably my favorite living writer. He's only sort of uh, cultishly popular, and I want more people to read his books, so publishers will continue to publish him. He writes about the Midwest. Uh, He writes about people trying to do the right thing in the world, but the world often stands in front of them or their own natures get in their way. And I just think he's a beautiful writer and, and people should read his books. The last recommendation I have is education related. And that's a, a book called Bad Ideas About Writing, edited by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowe. And that's put out by uh, West Virginia University Press. And it's free. 
and it's filled with dozens of essays about writing premised on this idea of bad idea where it, it tackles many of the things we've been told about writing, taught about writing things about grammar or mechanics or audience or uh, practices in, in teaching things like rubrics. And these individual authors of the essays question them and see what holds up, what deserves challenge, what's complicated. And as it turns out, a lot of this stuff really is complicated. So it's not like uh, rubrics bad or rubrics good. It's more like rubrics when, when should we use it or how should we use them? And even as somebody who I feel like I've, I've dedicated a lot of time to both reading about and thinking about writing and teaching writing, as I've been making my way through it, and there's so much sort of parceling it out for myself bit by bit, you know, thought-provoking insights that cause me to reflect and uh, alter my own thinking time after time after time. And I think a lot of it can be applicable to disciplines outside of writing as well. It's, it's really a kind of awesome resource of a lot of different people reflecting on the work they do in the classroom. And I, d I find it inspiring. I think anybody should read this book. John, thank you for all three of these recommendations. And on a broader scheme, thank you for being on today's <laughs> show. And even broader than that, you really, even though you're not this semester in a traditional classroom, you are teaching so many of us. And I just so appreciate your work. You are a brilliant teacher. And it's amazing to me that you could have taught me this much just through your words, your written words. And then it's so fun to get to talk to you in person today. No, oh, it was great fun. I could go another three hours, but we won't. Maybe maybe <laughs> in the future. I was going to say, speaking of invitations, maybe we can, because I could talk to you for hours and hours too, we can just continue this. And so I'll invite you back on the show and, and you can share even more because I don't think we've even skimmed the surface. Absolutely. I, I'll look forward to it. What a treat it was to talk to John today. And I neglected to ask him to pronounce his alter ego for me. And it's or on the air, I should say, it's Bibli Oracle. So I mispronounced it in the intro, but you can go check him out on Twitter and his couple of regular writing responses. And we can all look forward to 2018 and 19, where we will get to see those books on teaching that he is working on. Thank you again, John. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to go to the show notes, they'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 172. And just thank you so much for the community that we're building. I'm hearing from so many of you, and it's always just so fun to hear what you're doing in your teaching and how you're taking things away from the show and putting them into practice. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time, everybody.